0: We sent out an email this week uh, notifying folks about the finished sale of the Alpine shop and kind of where we stood on that. And I've already had about three people say, I don't exactly understand the numbers. So very, very briefly, kind of here's bottom line what you need to know. Uh, We sold the Alpine shop. That's all done. All the money that we have from the sale of the Alpine shop and all the money that we have from the rent we've received over a couple of years comes at just over $800,000, $808,000 and some change. That money's in the bank in the building fund, we paid half cash up front for the property we own. So the only debt we have outstanding is for the 100 Kirkwood Place property, which is 1.85 million dollars. So that's the debt that we have on the on the property, which is 50% of the of the property. And then we have 808 thousand dollars in seed money to start the next phase. So those are really the two numbers you need to understand. The last thing I'll say about this before we jump into the sermon is. We're going to get through spring break. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes planning and thinking and talking going on right now. And in April, we're going to hit the ground running. So in April, you're going to be invited to meetings to give input and feedback, and we're going to really get after it uh, right after spring break. So that's kind of where we stand. Anytime you have a question or thought, let us know, and we'll be happy to get back to you. So I'm on the internet this week, and uh, I come across, I don't know if it's a tweet or a blog or a Twitter or what, I can never keep all this straight, but I came across a very brief uh, seven or eight sentences, the title of which was, Why I Hate Christians, I thought, that's pretty interesting. There's some Christians I don't particularly like, but I don't know that I hate any of you. Uh, but that kind of grabbed my attention. So I went and I looked on it. Again, it's just a few sentences, but talk about a few sentences. Let me read this to you. What a bunch of fools. They plan out their entire lives according to, the rules, uh, to rules set by a kooky ancient book of myths. And hey, don't you just love how they're ever so convincingly excused themselves from from providing proof by using crutches like faith? Sorry, but just because you believe something, that doesn't make it true. Moses turned the sea into blood and then later parted it? Yeah, and sweat socks fly south for the winter. Ask yourself, if somebody told me such an event had taken place today, today in all caps, would I believe it? No. Point proven. Ignorance is a scary thing. Where's the love? (laughs) Where's some hostility in those words? I mean, I I understand there are times, you know, even even in my own household where where we say, you know, we're just going to agree to to disagree. It is okay to have a, a difference of opinion, but, you know, can't we all just get along with one another? Acts chapter 5, verses 14 through 32. Hear the word of God. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people were also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So go right back to where you were when you got arrested and keep doing what you were doing when you got arrested. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him they called together the council and all the uh, and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came they did not find them in prison so they returned and reported, "We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this had, would come to. And someone came in and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. This is the reign of God's holy. Perfect word to Him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Your Word encompasses every circumstance of life, every situation that we may face. Father, we may choose to... uh, to measure our lives by whether or not we're popular, by how well we're received by folks, by uh, whether we are uh, well thought of, our reputation. Father, we may measure our lives by the, the amount of money we have in the bank or the number of possessions we own. We may measure our lives by uh, whether our, our family is uh, seems healthy and secure and, and doing well. Uh, Father, uh, so much of what we spend our time doing is buffering ourselves from adversity. It's from kind of keeping the wolves at bay, so to speak. And yet, Lord, as we call ourselves your disciples, it is clear from your word that there will be times, not just when people disagree with us, but when they're angered by the message. And that doesn't feel very good to us. We don't like the idea of that kind of conflict. So, Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, we would, we would not be filled with self-righteous indignance, uh, we would not be filled with any kind of, of spiritual arrogance, but rather, Father, we would be humbled and we would be sobered to that which you have called us, and that our faith and our trust and our hope would be in you, and not in whatever circumstances we may be able to create for ourselves. Father, this is an important text It deals with a difficult subject, and I certainly can't do it justice. And quite frankly, Lord, my words are not important. It is only your eternal word that every person in this room needs to hear this morning. So Father, we pray that you would move me out of the way, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me uh, in any way be an obstacle of what you want us to learn and to know. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would teach us your truth. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, everyone certainly isn't going to have a favorable response to Jesus, whether it's uh, just by looking at the Bible and reading it and saying that's nonsense or whether it's by interaction uh, with uh, Christians whom they come across. I actually read another article this week that was entitled, Why, Why I Love Jesus But Don't Like Christians. And the person was actually a Christian and I was kind of wondering what he thought about himself, but I didn't bother to go down that particular road. But it's clear that if, uh, if we go that first slide, if you're, if you're going to have this passion to share the good news with folks, if you're going to even be slightly interested in, in being a witness for Christ, we need to understand that we're not always going to be well-received. The message, as well as, as, as ourselves, can be uh, up for mockery. People can say, you're naive, you're, you know, what a bunch of fools, as the article uh, that I read to you mentioned. You know, we'll be judged as as folks are intolerant. You know, why do you Christians insist that Jesus is the only way? Why don't you just show a little bit more uh, openness to other ideas, to other philosophies? We could also be accused of being out of touch or being irrelevant. You know, this is the 21st century. We don't hold on to those old ancient myths that are that are found in that old old book called the Bible. Now, clearly. You and I can be guilty of spiritual arrogance. We can be guilty of an inappropriate type of intolerance. We certainly can be naive and not very well informed. Uh, we certainly can mislead people. And we can certainly be out of touch and not at all concerned about whether or not we relate the gospel in a way in which people can, can grasp it and understand it. So I, I don't want this to become an us versus them conversation because that would, would radically not be the point. But that being said, the facts are there is hostility at times surrounding the gospel. And how do disciples of Jesus respond to the hostile crowd? That's really what we want to consider this morning because Peter and the apostles are faced with a significant amount of hostility, more than probably anyone in this room has ever faced. I've never been put in jail for my faith. Uh, And and maybe you've had that experience in a different country in which you've lived. That, That may certainly be the... Uh, the the circumstances of your life, but but by far and away, American Christians have not exper- experienced that kind of persecution, but but they have experienced hostility to the message. So what can we learn from from how the apostles responded? And I also want to look at this morning. We're not going to just stay purely in Acts chapter five. We're going to go into the Gospels, and I want to look at what Jesus says about this uh, circumstance, about these kinds of situations, and hear the instructions that he gives, because the hearer of this story is not Peter, it's not the apostles, and we could say, boy, way to go fellows, way to hang in there and be strong, and get focused on them, and it wouldn't be wrong to applaud their response, it was a good response, but the focus of our encouragement needs to be on what Christ had done before that, to prepare them for this moment, So I'll give you three observations about how disciples should respond to a hostile crowd. The first... um The first teaching, the first observation I want to make is we need to have appropriate expectations. And for that, I'm going to take you over to John's gospel. We're going to be in John 15 for a moment, and then a couple verses later, we're going to look at John 16. Uh, But we've mentioned before that Jesus, that name or that person or that message doesn't always get a great reception. And Jesus spoke directly to this. This is the night before Jesus is going to the cross. This is after they've concluded uh, the Lord's Supper. And a few weeks ago, when Bill Vogler was in town, he preached about Jesus teaching his disciples by washing their feet. This is right after that occurs. And Jesus says to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I said to you. Remember a teaching I've given to you before. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think it's important that we understand that this kind of comes with the territory, so to speak. It ought not be a surprise to us if someone has an overly negative reaction to the gospel. We also need to get that foundation and that basis kind of squared away in our minds because out of our attitude, our actions flow, right? So if we, if we have a clear understanding of, of a set of circumstances, whatever they may be, we're going to act accordingly, and if you look at chapter uh, 16, the first few verses, Jesus says, I- I'm telling you these things, not just so that you kind of brace yourself and walk around all worried and not sure when the next time somebody's going to come after you, but I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to, to, to lose heart when these things happen. So he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now I'm going to stop here and go down a side road. There are some really bad theologians that have taken that phrase to say, if you don't always stand up under persecution, that means you're not a Christian. And see, Jesus says that you can actually lose your salvation. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what the original language means. Jesus is saying to his disciples, "There could come a moment when you, when you fail to stand for me under temptation that, or under, under persecution. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Jesus has already said to these 11 men, "Nobody can take you away from me." So what he's trying to do is help them understand that as these moments come, they may despair. They may get worn out. They may get exhausted. So I want you emotionally to be prepared so that you don't slip during those moments. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is guarding his disciples. He's guarding his disciples in that moment and his disciples today against despair because he's reminding us that, that it's going to happen. You'll have these moments where people have an extremely negative reaction to the message of the gospel. And at that moment, I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to become discouraged and lose heart. And if you go back to Acts chapter five and you look at it, here's Peter and the other apostles and they're they're preaching in, in the temple and they're arrested and they're put in prison and the, the angel sets them free. And the angel says, now go back and go and do exactly what you were doing before. I think I would say, could I just ask a question? (laughs) Excuse me? Maybe we should rethink our strategy for church planting here. The whole jail thing doesn't sound like a good idea. Maybe if we just preached outside the temple, maybe if we, we started a new congregation in the marketplace... Or we just kind of went down the street to, you know, to Bethlehem where Jesus was born and we started a church there. Maybe we wouldn't draw so much attention. Maybe it'd be just a, a little bit smoother for us. Maybe it'd be okay. But that's not what God says. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Just go back and do what you're called to do. And notice that the apostles, they, they, they just go do it early the next morning. They're right back at it. It's kind of like they don't really blink an eye. There's, there's no mention of Peter and the crew kind of being caught off balance oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Why do you think this happened? What should we do? There seems to be a real calmness of spirit. There's no mention of, of fear or angst or, or throwing in the towel. Appropriate expectations, based on what Jesus tells us, guards our hearts and minds against discouragement and against despair. very personal example to me is my relationship with my father the vast majority of my life. My dad pretty much mocked the Christian faith. I no, didn't do it in an overt and a and a in a mean-spirited way, but he he had no use for it. And my dad made sure I was in church every Sunday because he knew that would make my mom happy and she'd leave him alone. <laughs> There's a the motivation for you. Okay. But my dad didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And there were moments when, when, when I would want to talk to him about it, and he would just say, Stop. I don't want to hear that nonsense. And if I didn't have this context, if I didn't understand that Jesus said not everybody is just going to come and hug you and thank you and pat you on the back and and we're all going to hold hands and and sing blissfully as we we make our way to heaven, then I could have maybe thrown in the towel. I could have maybe said, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen and just completely given up. Friends, let's have appropriate expectations. Those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, we must understand that it isn't always going to go smoothly and be warmly received. But secondly, we also need to understand, given these expectations, given this understanding, that, that actually hostility can create opportunity. I'm going to go to Luke's gospel for just a minute, and Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples. And again, kind of along the same uh, notion here, Jesus says they, the, you know, the folks that are after you, they'll lay their hands on you persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus says it might be a prison cell. It might be a palace throne room. The setting isn't really all that important, but I am going to orchestrate these encounters. I'm going to give you these opportunities that feel like suffering to you, that feel like a a negative reaction, that if you could vote on it, you would say, no, I'd rather not have that one, I'd rather have this one. I'm going to bring these opportunities to you for the express purpose of giving you a chance to be a witness for me, to speak clearly and concisely. I'm actually going to bring you into these difficult circumstances in order for you to share the gospel with those who right now hate what you say. Because I understand the whole plan. I know what I'm doing. And I can even use hatred for the advancement of my kingdom. You see, friends, as disciples, ours is not to define whether whether the circumstances are are good or bad. You know, I'll share my faith in in this scenario, but I won't share it over here. You know, I'll be bold here, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut over here because this could kind of stir the waters. That's not our decision. It's not our responsibility To define the circumstances. Our responsibility is to stay on message. Our responsibility is to say whatever response comes, whether people gladly embrace the truth of Jesus as Savior and Lord, dying for their sins, being resurrected so that they too could have eternal life, whether that is the greatest news they've ever had or whether they want to pick up a baseball bat and hit me in the head with it isn't the point. The point is that I'm going to stay on message-sharing the truth about Jesus. And notice that that the hostility in Acts 5. So what happens? These guys are back in the temple, and the priests and the, and the guards are trying to figure out what on earth happened. I mean, All the doors are locked. It doesn't look like anybody did anything wrong, but we can't find these guys. And somebody walks in and goes, hey, I, I was just over at the temple, and they're they're out there preaching, and I thought you guys locked them up. It would have be been kind of fun to see the look on everybody's face. So so they bring them in, and, and they start fussing at him again. And Peter just comes right back to the message of the gospel, not in an arrogant way, not in a rude way. He just says, look, you know, this is what God is, is doing. But notice who, to whom he's speaking, to the leaders of the nation of Israel. These are not like just common everyday folks. These, these are like the, the senators and, and, and the people of great influence who are now once again having the opportunity to be confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Hostility creates opportunity. One other observation, not only do we need to have appropriate expectations, not only do we need to understand that hostility can create opportunities, but we need to really learn to embrace God's perspective on these things. So often I I kind of forget that the Lord has spoken about these things. And so my reaction when these moments come can be radically different than what God has called me to. So what is God's perspective? on what we would call persecution or, or suffering for the name of Jesus. And I want to take you for a moment to the Sermon on the Mount. And, I, and I'm, let me try to connect this stock because it may not make sense right off the bat. The first perspective of God is one of a proud papa. You're like, now how on earth did you get that out of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it took a little work, but hang with me because I think I, actually, I think I actually got it right. Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Make sure you don't lose that on my account, okay? You can be persecuted for being a jerk as a Christian, okay? So we all need to make sure we understand that it's because of the name of Jesus, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, blessed are you when others do this. Blessed means you're to be congratulated. You're to be patted on the back. You're to, you're to you know, be held and hugged and encouraged and said, way to go and rejoice and be glad for your reward in greatest heaven. So who's the one saying way to go? Who's the one grabbing you and hugging you and saying, boy, you did a great job. It's your heavenly father. It's, it's the Lord of lords. And the King of Kings, He's the one who's going to reward you for your faithfulness. He's the one who's going to say, "Let me share my inheritance with you for all of eternity." This is the proud Papa standing on the sidelines, or watching the event and saying, "That's my kid." Went out to dinner with some good friends on Friday night, and uh, one of my one of my friends was saying, "And uh, he's here this morning," and I, he, so I'm going to talk about you for just a minute. You know who you are. He said, "Yeah, I got a." Saturday morning, I got to, I got to spend over in Illinois, Southern Illinois, and I said, "Yeah, to go to Illinois. Where do you go?" Well, one of my kids won the spelling bee for his whole school. Just he he beat everybody, and now he's got to go to this regional thing, and I got to go set so up. I'm like, "Oh, that is. I am so sorry that you have to do that." What's he doing? All right, little subtle there. Everybody's going, "Look at my kid." He's great. And I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, I know what you're, you're pain." Next week in Springfield, I, I, or a week after next, I got to go to Springfield, Missouri, because Jordan's club hockey team's in the national finals. And I got to go down there and pay for a hotel room for two nights and watch my kid in the national finals. What are we doing? We're saying, that's my kid. <laughs> and we're poor-mouthing it, right? We're trying to look humble, right? But that's what we're saying. And when you stand in the face of adversity, when someone mocks you for being anti-intellectual, when somebody says you're you're a complete fool, you're an idiot for following Jesus. How, how can you believe those myths? How can you believe that nonsense? And you don't give up. And you don't quit. And you might not have the exact right words to say, and you might not convince that person. They might not talk to you the rest of your life. I don't know. But that moment, it's like the father, you know, calls Moses over. Moses, that's one of mine right there. The perspective of a proud father, when his child goes through challenging circumstances and comes out on the other side and is faithful, he just gets really excited. And I think one of the biggest problems with Christians is, is we don't understand how excited God gets about us. We kind of think God puts up with us, you know, but most of the time we really mess up. And yet, I think Scripture shows very clearly the passion that God has is a father for his sons and for his daughters, and how, and how excited he gets when we get it, even in a moment of testing. But also, I want you to see God's perspective is not just as, as a proud papa, but also that he's doing something through, uh, through th- these difficult times, that there's a patience that is developed uh, in our lives through, through this kind of abuse, and it serves a twofold purpose. And I'm going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount for just a minute uh, because there's a, there's a deep and abiding trust that's developed when we face this kind of challenge, Jesus has heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, <clears throat> excuse me. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, <clears throat> excuse me, turn to him the other also. Now, how on earth are you going to do that? And it, I don't even think it has to be a physical slap. It certainly can be. And there certainly are Christians that are physically abused because they have faith in Christ. But what about the, the slap of a really stinging insult? and not responding with an insult in kind? What about the notion of simply not needing to defend yourself? Not needing to come back and say, you know, I got to go on the attack now and, and get this person back for what they've done or for what they've said. There's a calmness of spirit, and there's a sense of stability in the mind of the person who can turn the cheek literally, and it can only come from their complete dependence upon Jesus. If somebody smacks you, in whatever way that happens, on account of Jesus, and you say to them, it's okay. Go ahead and smack me again if it it helps. That only comes through the power of God. There's no other way that happens in our lives. And so as these moments come where we are attacked for our faith, our trust in Christ must grow deeper. It will grow deeper. Our dependence will be more and more on him. But the second of these twofold purposes of how this patience develops is it also validates to the disciple and to the, the attacker the truth of the gospel. And for here, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip for just a minute over to Romans 12. And I've taken bits and pieces of verses 14 through 21. You could you could read all of that, but I've just kind of hit a couple of the points here. But the apostle Paul is talking, and he, and he's really kind of just following the message that Jesus gave to his disciples earlier on. And he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, should say, but leave it to the Lord. Um, uh, I, I, got, I copied two sentences in the same way. I didn't catch that mistake. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and here's where the application is going to come in for us. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you look at that, you say, wait a minute. It sounds like Paul's saying, don't try to get even. And by not trying to get even, do something good. And by doing good, you'll actually get even. That's not what he's saying. Because at the end, he says, you want to overcome evil, then we do it with good. So the motive here is not to say, boy, if I really want to get my enemy, and you've heard this before, right? Kill him with kindness. Who's heard that term? Who's, that is not a biblical term, okay? Let me be very, very clear about that. Kindness is not a weapon that you use against people. And I'm being very serious, friends. Sometimes we get, we get, we get sucked into these anecdotal comments, and, and we give them uh, the authority of Scripture. No place in the scripture where it says, kill someone with kindness. What Jesus is saying through the apostle Paul is when you respond in kindness, you affirm your faith. And that challenges the other person to consider their ways. And it may be that the burning coals of what has just happened, their attack against you may turn around and come back and be the very thing that God uses to bring them to their knees and to see their need for a savior. There's nowhere in Scripture where we're called, even with what might sound like something good, to attack another person. Paul says, care for them, feed them, clothe them, and God might do something with that. But, but quite frankly, what he's saying is what God does with that isn't really up to you. <laughs> you just make sure that you are representing Christ, and it validates for me. Because if I actually did that with an enemy, I think I would be walking around scratching my head going, that had to be God. (laughs) Because it most certainly couldn't have been Tom. Because Tom's, you know, I grew up watching John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm all about getting even, right? I'm all about making sure justice happens the way I define justice. If I were actually able to let go of that for the sake of someone else's soul, it would only be God. And so the Lord allows this abuse or these attacks because he wants us to deeply abide in Christ and trust in him, but he also wants to validate that he is watching over us and caring for us. And one other One other perspective that I think that we need to have that God gives us here under embracing God's perspective is we need to remember we've got to have an acute sense of self-awareness. And I'm going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount for just a second. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where that's your reaction and and it isn't a reaction of needing to defend yourself or wanting to go on the attack? And I think it comes by remembering that I was once an enemy of God, that I'm a disciple not because I'm one of the smart people that figured it all out. I'm a disciple because God's grace has reached into my life and he has saved me. I'm the recipient of God's grace. I didn't do anything to earn that. You know, we keep this cross up here every Sunday to remind ourselves visually that Jesus paid the price for us, that we're not good, special people, and all those folks out there haven't gotten it yet, but rather we stand in deep need for God to treat his enemies as his friends. And what does Paul say in Romans 5? While you were still enemies, what happened? Christ died for you. The cross. Not when you were God's friends, not when you were God's adopted son or daughter, that happened later while you were enemies christ died for you and when i begin to remember that i i was once an enemy i've been saved through god's kindness there's no room for arrogance on my part there's no room for a sense of revenge in my life i got to be honest with you when i read this article for the first time this this not an article but these words you know what a bunch of fools you know there's myths and you know don't they you know they they have no proof you know um, you know Moses turned the sea into blood later parted it well actually it was the nile river you idiot it wasn't the sea and you don't you haven't even studied the hebrew to understand what that word blood means and you know if you actually saw something in today somebody would put it on youtube and you would be able to see it right away and i'm getting angry and i'm getting self righteous and i'm getting indignant and i'm acting as if i never have been an enemy of God in my life. What a shame. I, I, I cared nothing for that person's soul. I don't know if it was a guy or a girl. kind of sounds like a guy, but I don't know. I cared nothing. For, I didn't care if they burned in hell for all of eternity. All I cared about was that they had attacked me. So the person preaching the sermon has probably further to go than anybody listening to it. How's that for encouragement this morning? But if you go back to Acts chapter 5 and you look at the response of the apostles and you look at, at the faith of the apostles and you look at how they, they stayed on message and how they spoke with confidence about Christ, you see the influence of God's perspective in their lives. It was a really good thing that Jesus set the table the way he did. It's a blessing to you and to me this morning if we're disciples. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus this morning, hopefully we will we will continue to challenge you to consider the claims of Christ even if you don't like what you hear. And by God's grace maybe we'll do that in a in a kind way. I certainly hope so. But I'm so thankful that that Jesus set it up so that we could really understand the situation and we could be prepared and we could look at at these moments as opportunity and that we would do so because We have been captured by the grace of God. So how do disciples respond to to the hostile crowd, so to speak? I want to give you three things, and we're done. The first one is this. If you're surprised, you're not paying attention. Um, Every time I get kind of, you know, like again, when I'm reading this article, I'm like, gosh, how can somebody be that way? No, no, no. Tom, you're not paying attention. (laughs) I've already told you that's going to happen. So simply being aware. Secondly, looking for the opportunity to speak of God's grace in Jesus, regardless of the reaction. And again, not out of arrogance, not out of, hey, I suffered for Jesus this week, I'm really a great, great guy or a great gal, but simply saying, Lord, where are you leading? Sometimes you lead me to people that sit politely and listen, and we have a wonderful conversation, and sometimes they put their faith in you. And other times you lead me to my own kitchen table when I was a teenager in a college and a young adult growing up with a dad who didn't want to hear any of it. Don't let me get hung up on the circumstances, let me just be faithful to share the message. And we need to remember that the real enemy is sin and Satan and death and hell. Enemies are not, whoever wrote this thing, that, that person's not my enemy. It's a person I need to love in Christ and, and seek to, if there's any way I could reach out to the part. I tried to find and see if there was a return email address and there wasn't. But when that kind of reaction comes to say, you know what? That person's really in a pickle. <laughs> that person's really in a bad spot, they might not realize it. And I don't say that to judge them. I say that because my reaction isn't arrogance, but actually my reaction turns to sorrow, and my, action, my, my the angst in my heart is for that person's soul. I think if I get there, I'll begin to understand what it means to respond to the hostile crowd and the way Christ has called me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you. For this passage and I thank you for the for the challenge that you put in front of Peter and the other apostles. Uh, in the midst of everything going incredibly well, we started out by reading there just people coming from everywhere and being, being saved by the grace of God in Christ and then right smack dab in the middle of, gosh, the church is growing, things are thriving, you have these guys tossed in prison and you confront them through the hostility of the the leaders of their nation who, who wanted nothing to do with this message. Father, you do that to remind us again this morning that it's not about our circumstances. It's not about having things go smoothly and, and us just being protected all the time, but rather it's about being faithful to show and to speak the grace of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would uh, forgive me, but also challenge my, my spiritual arrogance. and and indignance, and that you would grow all of us in a faith that would truly reflect your mercy and your grace. That we would not be surprised when these moments happen, but rather we would embrace them as an opportunity to grow in you and to talk to someone who, who needs the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.